welcome back everyone to the popular tapes we're uh glad that you're joining us uh, my name is keegan irish and i'm here with my friend alex bose hey guys yeah today we want to talk about mark fisher um, and we, we're, we're just talking about one essay in particular. I mean, we will probably bring up some themes that appear elsewhere in his work, but we thought it'd be fun to just, for today, concentrate on this one piece of writing and draw out some of the interesting aspects. Uh, so this is an essay from, what do we say, 2013, called Post-Capitalist Desire. I just wanted to say a few things right off the bat about why it's worthwhile to return to Mark Fisher and why we think he's uh, an important theorist for our time. And probably the core reason there is that the thrust or the main theme of a lot of Fisher's writings is imagining future possibilities other than capitalism. And he was really tuned into this idea that it is difficult for people living under capitalism to imagine capitalism ending in any way other than just a catastrophic end of the world. And there's no shortage of that kind of imagination. You know, we all know about the post-apocalypse movies and books and mm-hmm. blah, blah, blah. Yeah, all that stuff. And it's, it's it, as soon as these large-scale um, catastrophes uh, take place, people immediately jump to that that imaginary of post-capitalism where they say, oh, the uh, the apocalypse is here. Society's going to total breakdown. I'm going to have to, you know, eat my neighbors and shit. And uh, there's this immediate, uh, it's easy for people to imagine that, to imagine that, that our society will transition into something um, really brutal and cutthroat and that the world will end. Yeah, like, you know? yeah, breakdown into like gang warfare and shit. Yeah. Like. <laughs> You know, and these are not very um, hopeful, uplifting visions of a future possibility. Mm -hmm. And they're also not very creative. You know, it's just rehashing the same basic idea over and over um, in a really tired way. (laughs) I think, uh, I don't know, I'm bored of post-apocalypse stories, and I'm sure a lot of other people are too. Uh, But, you know, Fisher was way more uh, tapped in, tuned into that, and he realized that that's not the only way things can go. That's not the only possibility. And also, if you look at the past, people have imagined different kinds of possibilities for the future. And some of those futures are worth taking seriously and breathing life into in a way that is often passed over. So especially right now where our time does feel so apocalyptic, we're going into, at least here in Canada, we're looking at a second wave of COVID, cases are spiking, um, even after a summer of kind of relative peace there, it seems like the anxiety of lockdown is uh, returning and the kind of isolation and uh, uh, experience being pushed online, all that stuff is going to come back in full force, I think, over the course of the fall and winter. Um, and as well, the stuff we were mentioning before, you know, intensifying police violence, just uh, like brutal racialized repression going on both here in Canada and uh, um, in the States. So all that can leave you feeling a bit hopeless and like it's difficult to imagine another world. And it's precisely in moments like that where Fisher's theories can have so much to offer and have so much promise. And this piece in particular is valuable because um, it's very strategic in a way. 
in the sense that it talks about some of the challenges that the left faces today. Um, talks about the way that those challenges can be taken on through savvy analysis and through um, kind of imaginative grandeur. So, yeah, I think that's important stuff. And, yeah, I'm excited to dive in here. So is there anything you wanted to say, Alex, just to contextualize the article? Or yeah, yeah, sure. I've been building up there. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, for sure, for sure. So uh, this particular article... Um, we don't actually really know when it was made, but we're thinking 2013, 2012, sometime around this, because it's uh, it's quite clearly an article that or a paper that he uh, uh, Fisher published shortly after the beginning of the Occupy movement, and it's kind of a response actually to the formation of anti-capitalist politics that emerged out of the Occupy movement and a response to some of the conservative rhetoric in England in particular in relation to anti or uh, yeah anti-capitalism for a bit more context I I found I actually came across this paper during what I think was the Fisher function so uh, this was kind of an event that took place, I think it was in London at the University of Goldsmiths, and it was a kind of commemoration to Fisher because uh, Fisher uh, passed away about, I don't know, a couple of months before this uh, this event took place. Um, so I, I actually found out a bit, I kind of discovered Fisher when I was uh, traveling in London and uh, 2017. And, uh, that was the same year that he, uh, he died and he's writing this paper in the heart or birthplace of industrial capitalism. Right. Uh, and so he, he has a certain kind of vantage point, really a vantage point of, uh, some of the effects of, uh, some of the effects of, uh, post-Fordism and, uh, post-industrialization in the global North. And, and so he, he, what he, you know, he has so much to offer to us, uh, in the, in the political left in general and, uh, into the future for the kind of language that he was able to, uh, invent in order to discuss and describe, uh, the world that we live in, uh, today. Yeah, it'll be a great, uh, great paper to discuss and, uh, to use as fodder for our own imagination. Yeah. Yeah. All right, cool. So uh, let's dive in here. So Fisher opens the essay by telling a kind of anecdote about this conservative politician, Louise Mensch. And um, yeah, this person was mocking the Occupy protesters at the London Stock Exchange uh, precisely because they were buying Starbucks and that they were using iPhones, you know. And so he says the suggestion was clear, being anti-capitalist entails being a, quote, anarcho-primitivist. <laughs> yeah. um, and he, he, he says that while Mensch's remarks were ridiculed, um, the questions that they raise actually shouldn't be dismissed quite so easily. Uh, So what he's interested in here is this idea of the connection between uh, technology and 
uh, capital and desire, where it's usually conceptualized that um, a desire for technology um, is itself a desire for uh, capitalism. Uh, because capitalism is the sole purveyor of innovation and of technological production and um, of the assembly line and, and, and so on and so forth, right? And, but Fisher wants to challenge this assumption and say, why is a desire for technology necessarily a desire for capital, right? Like, maybe that's not the case. And he points out some historical examples of uh, uh, socialist states. And I mean, look at the Soviet Union, right? They pretty obviously embraced technological progress and advancements. Um, and and he has some other kind of examples that he draws on there. And so it that, that kind of becomes the framing device uh, for this article. Why uh, are these... Uh, why is anti-capitalism necessarily um, opposed to technological advance? And uh, why is desire for technology only considered to be desire for capital, right? So, yeah, that, those become some of the framing questions. And then he kind of leads into these different challenges uh, that he thinks based on this problematic that the left is facing today and that the left needs to kind of deal with a bit more, a bit more seriously and a bit more explicitly to counter uh, some of these arguments. So Alex, do you want to just walk through the different challenges there or? Yeah. Yeah. yeah? Okay. For sure. All right. So uh, the, the first challenge that uh, uh, Mark Fisher says that uh, the political left is faced with today um, is uh, advertising and PR. Uh, this is what he kind of calls a pervasive negative advertising where, quote, it delibidinizes de all things public, traditional, pious, charitable, authoritative, or serious, taunting them with the sleek seductiveness of the commodity. So uh, essentially what he's getting at here is the extent to which capitalism or the capitalist uh, economic system and neoliberalism have kind of dominated uh, 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 discourse and uh, space, created these kind of colonies of images that capitalize on our desires and monopolize our desires. And the implicit question here is, you know, how do we, co so how do we on the political left uh, combat or contend with uh, the power of advertising and PR and the uh, the libidinal energies that it uh, you know feeds on, and uh, one of his playful kind of thought experiments uh, that we'll return to later on in the discussion is this rhetorical question where he's like, "Didn't the moment of the left's failure coincide with the growing perception that radical and chic are incompatible?" The second challenge that he brings up is this visible kind of contradiction in the political left where there is a division between the political left's commitment to revolution on the one hand and its tendency towards political informal aesthetic conservatism so essentially what he's saying is that there's there's a, a vision of the relationship between capitalism and the political left that has emerged where capital has become something in 
public discourse that's perceived as a kind of hydraulic force of desire. And it's dynamic, and uh, it, it you know it challenges and breaks through restrictions. You know, and we think of like free market capitalism. We th- think of deregulation and all of these ideas that and these connotations that uh, are connected to, yeah, like neoliberal and capitalist thinking, free market thinking. Um, capitalism ends up taking on this like very uh, fluid. Uh, image and it's you know it's meant to liquefy everything and combat and it has this like uh, disruptive character and then on the other hand the political left uh, ends up being portrayed as like defending protecting and preserving and is seen as a resistance to change and as a resistance to the forces of desire and it's like uh, it's taken on a very similar image as uh, uh, the old portrayals and representations of uh, communism in like red uh, you know uh, the red scare kind of uh, propaganda or something yeah um, it's like oh it's all gonna be so homogenous and you're gonna have to do things you don't want to do and and it's interesting, too, to see here that this is one of the ideological victories, I think, of neoliberalism, because when the left is still tied to the kind of Fordist structures of production, whereas uh, neoliberalism has already emerged, then it can portray the left as sort of of the past and uh, it just wanting to defend this old, worthless uh, welfare state status quo, which was uh, like ultimately a failure. Um, and so what I mean by that, and for people maybe who are confused by this idea, question of the transition between Fordism to neoliberalism. Those terms might not be super familiar to everyone. Um, so Fordism basically is the, it, it's a, a name for the post-war capitalist uh, settlement wherein someone who works at Henry Ford's factory to building the Model T makes enough money to support their family and own the Model T car, right? And so there is this kind of relation between stable jobs, stable housing, and um, that's, uh, that is undergirded through an alliance between uh, the capitalist uh, productive forces and um, the welfare state which provides certain services to allow uh, laborers to be able to effectively perform roles in uh, this kind of market, right? Um, but over time, the left was uh, uh, in a form of unions and labor parties and so on, is fighting for uh, things like wage increases, things like decrease in working hours, greater protections for families, all this sort of thing stuff, right? And the capitalist strategy for getting out of that problem ended up being to seek out cheaper labor markets in other um, countries outside of the global north. And so this is where you see uh, production springing up in places like Latin America and Southeast Asia and, uh, you know, where people are forced into horrific labor conditions and work for pennies on the dollar compared to unionized uh, global north workers, right? And so this completely undermines the power of labor um, in the in the globalized north, we talk about oh, like the post-industrial. I mean, people are probably familiar with this idea of the Rust Belt. You know, it's the, oh, it's the swing state. Where's it going to go in the American election? And it's like, well, why does it exist, right? Like that that was an old productive heartland of the United States, and there are equivalent kind of spaces in Canada as well. 
equivalent kind of geographies. And those end up being the, uh, you know, what Chris Hedges calls the the economic sacrifice zones of capitalism, where those communities uh, ultimately have their kind of purpose removed while, when the companies find uh, cheaper uh, cheaper ways to uh, get the labor done and to provide in these supply chains. And so this kind of uh, globalization provides the like underlying framework for for neoliberal capitalism which when it really takes off is all about yeah deregulating trade between uh, nations on the globalized market to try and make these uh, types of supply chains more economically viable uh, uh, in incredible growing complexity of uh, financial systems and instruments um, which is concomitant with uh, the rise of digital technologies and the speed at which these different transactions can be made and so on. Um, and uh, this, uh, you know, according to David Harvey, like ultimately lifts up a new kind of globalized class of um, wealthy capitalists. And so this new class and this new form of, of class antagonism is uh, characteristic of the neoliberal order. And there's a lot more that we could say about that. I think it's uh, ultimately really important, but I just wanted to explain what we mean when we talk about that, because that seems pretty foundational for understanding um, this essay as a whole, but also for understanding what Mark Fisher is saying here by the conservatism of the left. Yeah, yeah. And uh, and then uh, what he, so then he, you know, he responds to this kind of portrait of the contemporary world and the contemporary political left. And he says, uh, where is the left that can speak as confidently in the name of an alien future that can openly celebrate rather than mourn the disintegration of existing socialities and territorialities? This whole vision of the political left that we've been talking about kind of implies a, a political left that is uncomfortable with the breakages and, and, and disintegration, you know, and one that wants to preserve, right? Um, and then he also, uh, so yeah, he goes into the third challenge, and this one is essentially the fact that the political left has to try and compete with capitalism on the same terrain that it operates. And this terrain he describes as a terrain in which technology is embedded into everyday life in the body, design and PR are ubiquitous, financial abstraction enjoys dominion over government, life and culture are subsumed into cyberspace, and data hacking consequently assumes increasing importance. Partly in, as a preliminary response to this, he basically wants to say that we can we can even look to some of the cultural revolutions of the 1960s and say, oh, you know what, uh, you know, let's look to what they were trying to fight for and struggle for, and uh, we can begin to rekindle some of uh, that spirit, you know, and um, and create a more effective. Uh, anti-authoritarian left. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And yeah, so that last challenge seems really important and the other two are really closely connected there as well, right? Because really it seems to me what these challenges are about are 
analyzing and understanding the contemporary situation such that you can combat capitalism effectively and for the moment, as opposed to um, just relying on kind of relitigating older models of, of the left. You know, the conditions are different. And so according to um, like serious political analysis, you have to have a, a, a new analysis and a new set of strategies in order to um, fight capitalism in that co- in that context. And so this is the this is what Fisher is saying is, can the left actually compete? at the level at which capitalism is operating right now, right? At the level of this whole kind of technological, digital cyber world, along with its, you know, complex uh, financial instruments and the kinds of power that those um, are capable of exercising. And um, does the left have the analytic capacity to see that for what it is in the moment and uh, respond effectively? And I think uh, we'll find the answer is sort of. Uh, it's like a yes and no. So, yeah. <laughs> um, so I think there's something here, right? Where he's he's challenging, uh, he's challenging us. Um, he's challenging those of us who want to see this world improve instead of go down that path that we were talking about earlier to, you know, some terrible apocalypse if you want to see rather a future wherein um we can live kind of full and healthy lives with a um a sense of promise and hope then we're gonna have to come up with detailed analyses and detailed strategies about how to um, operate at the level that capital is operating at right now if that makes sense yeah yeah definitely because um yeah, like like you were saying before, I mean, uh, the transition from Fordism to post-Fordism and uh, this kind of deindustrialization of uh, some of the more affluent, I guess, uh, nations, uh, and uh, the the way that outsourcing and uh, new global networks and supply chains have kind of disempowered labor and the traditional workers' movement. It means that there are these new historical circumstances that people have to uh, to respond to, and uh, the left has to yeah understand uh, understand the complexity of our current situation in relation to capitalism and neoliberalism, right? So that makes that makes perfect sense. And you know, and and I mean one of one of his examples that he talks about of a uh, political left that is kind of failing to failed to uh, imagine its contemporary situation wasn't only occupy because you know he does talk a bit about occupy it's been criticized you know as like anti-politics because mm-hmm. it was it didn't offer like kind of alternative alternative modernity necessarily um, there weren't enough political dema- demands and lots of people have I think uh, kind of critiqued it for that but yeah. um another another example that fisher actually brings up is on his blog uh k-punk where he talks about the uh these protests that happened in paris in 2006 and i'm just gonna i'm gonna read that uh a quote here uh from his uh directly from his blog so he says um the students who kicked off the latest protests seem to think they were reenacting the events of may 1968 sorry, of May 1968, their parents sprang on Charles de Gaulle. They have borrowed its slogans beneath the cobblestone streets, 
the beach and hijacked its symbols, the Sorbonne University. In this sense, the revolt appears to be the natural sequel to last autumn's suburban riots, which prompted the government to impose a state of emergency. Then it was the jobless ethnic underclass that rebelled against a system that excluded them. Yet the striking feature of the latest protest movement is that this time the rebellious forces are on the side of conservatism. Unlike the rioting youths in the banlieue, the objective of the students in public sector trade unions is to prevent change and to keep France the way it is. So I think this is just a great example that Mark Fisher gives where, you know, people are literally recycling uh, slogans from 1968. Yeah. It's like, this is a clear, I mean, not to say that the present doesn't already have so many different conditions that are operating at different speeds, I guess, but you know, there, there is this kind of clear, uh, anachronism, you know? Um, uh, and can we, you know, can we really say that, uh, recycling, you know, these slogans, from 1968 are are pertinent to the present uh, or the yeah. present demands that we need to make yeah. you know so and i wonder if there is almost a similar kind of example of the this conservatism of the left which doesn't span over quite as long a time like if we're talking about 2006 all the way back to 68 like that's a pretty significant span yeah. of time I'll, I'll just say what i'm trying to get to here uh in in like environmental movements today where you look at the march for the climate and all this oh, sort of thing yeah. where um or yeah like extinction rebellion and a lot of their tactics uh and a lot of their ideas that seems to me to come from an older worse analysis of the the climate situation you know where there's this kind of moral nihilism where all oh, human beings as such are the problem and if only we would die or our population would diminish then we would uh you know <laughs> then the world would be good and there's this kind of really, yeah that's really bleak like dark but i think that also comes from a lack of a uh, of a salient analysis, you know, because, well, yeah, under the conditions of contemporary capitalism, we're not going to get out of the climate crisis at all. And that, that is the reality, but we also have to see that the climate crisis, the climate crisis itself emerges from the um, social contradictions within capitalist society. Right. And so, the the climate crisis is really a social crisis at, at bottom. So it's not about killing everyone to make it better. It's about shifting our social conditions and having an analysis appropriate um, to understanding why uh, capitalism produces this um, these kind of environmental crises, right? That are really it's a series of crises that are all kind of piled on top of each other. There's you know a bunch of different problems like. Um, we can talk just about uh, carbon in the atmosphere or whatever, but what about oh plastic in the ocean? And right, so there's all these different um, kind of reinforcing elements, but I think they're all born out from this uh, these fundamental social condi- conditions within capitalism, and the lack of the ability to kind of recognize that leads the uh, leads a lot of environmental movement into this these kind of um, regressive or reactionary positions. Yeah, I, I actually, 
I remember when I attended the climate strike in Montreal last year being extremely, yeah, disappointed, obviously, because it's like, okay, yeah, sure, 500,000 people showed up, but like, okay. I mean, the most that really happened was that uh, because of all of the traffic uh, downtown, it actually interrupted uh, the internet service in the kind of commercial sector, which was kind of cool. But, nice. <laughs> but outside of that, it was like Greta... Greta's speech was just like so flat and like uh, yeah. after you know we've you know we win this we can all go back to work and it's like what like <laughs> <laughs> it's like are you serious yeah that's precisely what we yeah. don't want to do yeah exactly and then I remember trying to like find some of the photos of just the crowd on uh, social media and somebody had like posted this video or sorry this picture and then just wrote like uh, I don't know, something about how they felt inspired by like the amount of people there, but then was just like uh, completely speechless at uh, how to get, how to like actually make change, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, so, so once again, just like this very, uh, I guess anecdotal, but uh, uh, example of, uh, of just this like inability to imagine like, yeah. 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 And, you know, we've seen that, I mean, Justin Trudeau right now has just come out and said, oh, you know, our whole recovery from COVID needs to be really green and there needs we need to turn a corner on the climate crisis. At the same time that he just poured whatever, however many billions of dollars into the offshore oil drilling industry out this east. <laughs> you know, yeah. same, same day these things are reported. Um, the headlines came out on the same day. <laughs> classic liberal yeah exactly and so <laughs> it, but it just shows that these this climate talk and sloganeering can yeah. fit in very well with the elements that the the same kind of social dynamics which are creating the crisis in the first place like and so that's where you know we need both a good analysis but also a good analysis that's appealing like obviously that kind of uh, regressive stuff is appealing, is desirable to people. The fact that 500,000 people came out on the street. Yeah. You know, we're not seeing 500,000 people coming out on the street to say, um, you know, let's uh, tear down neoliberalism. And uh, we're yeah. just, th that that isn't a kind of, uh, yeah, exactly. That isn't, <laughs> doesn't appear to be desirable to people. It doesn't appear to be yeah. a core kind of organizing principle that brings people out. Yeah. And the question really is why, right? Why is that the case? And I think Fisher's answer to that question would be that uh, because capitalism is fundamentally winning the fight uh, at the level of advertising PR and therefore um, the libidinal economy, right? The economy of desire. Capitalism has effectively captured our um, desires and is able to direct them, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so uh, what does that mean? So maybe we can move on to talking now about this relationship between capitalism and desire, which is really important uh, for Fisher in this essay and throughout his whole oeuvre. So yeah, maybe I'll just quickly read a quote if that's okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, on this point. Uh, Fisher writes that the point now isn't to defend Deleuze and Guattari per se, but to accept that the question that they raised, the relation of desire to politics in a post-Fordist context, is the crucial problem that the left now faces. The collapse of the Soviet bloc and the retreat of the workers' movement 
in the West wasn't only or even primarily due to failures of will or discipline. It is the very disappearance of the Fordist economy with its concomitant disciplinary structures, which means that we can't just carry on with the same old forms of political institution, the same modes of working class social organization, because they no longer correspond to the actual and contemporary form of capitalism and the rising subjectivities that accompany and or contest it. Okay, so there is um, a lot there, some of which hopefully you're already picking up on from what we've uh, been saying so far, right? The collapse of the Soviet bloc, retreat of the workers' movement, the end of uh, Fordist uh, capitalism. This is this new terrain of, of post-Fordism, of neoliberalism, however you want to describe it. This is the new terrain of late capitalism, of capitalism of late, um, in which we need to um, have salient analyses and uh, have organizing principles which are um, which operate in recognition of those analyses right so um, yeah the old disciplinary structures of Fordism you know the factory floor the union operates within the context of the factory form of organization so suddenly without anyone working in a factory how does it operate right it needs to it needs to redeploy itself. It needs to um, recreate itself to be able to respond here. Uh, so we can't have the same old forms of political institution, right? Uh, the same modes of working class social organization seems pretty self-evident. Um, but I, this last part I think is important. The rising subjectivities that accompany or contest it, right? So, alongside this new contemporary form of capitalism, we have to recognize that there are new kinds of subject, there are new kinds of people who are the ones participating in this um, in this new kind of matrix of capitalism, and um, the desires that these subjects have, right, are conditioned by the um, world of capitalism around them and uh, the way in which they see and relate to themselves. And I could say we, I guess I don't have to say they, we are these subjectivities. <laughs> yeah. Like this is what we're talking about yeah. is the kinds of people that we are as opposed to the kinds of people that our grandparents were. Right. Um, yeah. So I think this, this desire and capitalism stuff is, is really important. And so at, this is, Mark Fisher doing a kind of critical theory thing, right? Where he's bringing together um, like a Freudian psychoanalysis with a Marxist analysis of social life. And this form of analysis was really popularized uh, through kind of critical theorists in the past. And so who I really thought of here, and it turns out Alex was telling me earlier, um, Fisher actually lectured and did a class, one of his last classes was on uh, Herbert Marcuse. Um, and so Herbert Marcuse has some really deep analyses that he did in the 1960s of the relationship between uh, capitalism and uh, desire. And so here, when we hear the word desire, it's not just um, this idea of wanting things, but it's also one of the foundational, fundamental drives that conditions um, human psychology, right? So 
the fact that you are kind of a conscious entity and that you operate in the world and are conscious of this and that is is conditional on um, the ordering of your desire with relation to the world, right? Um, so this is um, when we say libido. This is kind of what we're talking about. It's 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 this fundamental uh, drive. Uh, it, that that relates human beings to the world. And so Marcuse talks about it in a really interesting way where desire just, at, you know, at birth, like at the beginning of psychological maturity, um, your libido, your desire is not yet appropriately fitted to the world, right? It is in excess. You want to um, just sort of have everything, take everything within yourself and to transform it into you and vice versa. So there's just this open-ended, intense desirousness. You know, you think about a baby that just is laying on its crib or whatever, and it's screaming and crying. And what does it want? Who knows? It can't articulate what it wants. It just <laughs> wants, you know, it just has this desire. Uh, it's, you know, extremely intense and is completely all encompassing. And it is yet to be um, conditioned by the objective world outside of its own um mind outside of its own psychological experience right and so um in freudian psychoanalysis the libido is tempered by the uh, by the objective conditions of the world which he just calls the reality principle so there's this encounter between uh uh desire and the reality principle they have this kind of interaction that reshapes the um libidinal drive in various ways and there's all kinds of ways that can become neurotic or whatever but it's not really what we're interested in um because for marcuse the reality principle, the objective conditions are of the world are fundamentally shaped by the class relations of capitalism. And so that's where he kind of brings together um, Marxism and this kind of Freudian uh, psychoanalysis that he's doing where he's um, exploring the way in which subjectivity under capitalism actually operates, right? So uh, that means that the way in which your desire is conditioned when it has this encounter with the with the reality principle, and you can think about almost like a like a force, like a uh, like a hydraulic pressure, like coming up against the rocks, like waves crashing on the rocks of reality, you know, where they the water has to take on that that shape, and it does shape the rock to a certain extent, but not like. Instantly, it doesn't flatten the rock. On the contrary, the wave breaks. You know, mm -hmm. and um, so those uh, that rock that the wave of your desire is breaking on are the objective conditions of capitalism. And so then your desire comes to be shaped by um, or to reflect the conditions of capitalism which exist. Okay. So I hope that explanation kind of makes sense of why we're talking about this relationship between capitalism and desire and why Mark Fisher's picking up on this and what some of the history is there, right? And so he, Mark Fisher, I think, is picking just like right up on that stuff and saying um, that the objective conditions of capitalism now are incredibly effective at conditioning, controlling, and um, directing desire, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And and to take up uh this this like yeah, 
kind of contemporary context of some of the ways in which desire is ordered. I mean, we've already talked a bit about uh, advertising and PR, but um, our uh, our mobile phones, right? So and uh, and our computers. I mean, in some places, people have more than one computer. You know, I, I don't, but I know that I know that there are people with more than one computer. <laughs> yeah, but and, you do. Uh, you have you have a phone and you have a laptop. Oh yeah, that's true. Yeah, my 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 phone is just a mini computer. That's yeah, true. That's you, got, you have two computers. Yeah, yeah. I have two computers. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> at least um, if not. Oh more. wait, no, no, I have three actually. I have a I have a fucking. Um, a tablet. But, <laughs> there you so go. I have, I have multiple. I have multiple. So I have all yeah. of these different portals into uh, uh, which into way the modern cyberspace. man? Sorry. Uh, which way modern man? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So there, there are all these. Uh, so yeah, all of these, all of these, uh, pe- were, uh, yeah, yeah, pieces of technology are portals into cyberspace, right? In cyberspace, you know, it has, it has a kind of. I mean, it has all kinds of. It, it's like kind of an infinite terrain to some degree, but uh, it's heavily commercialized, obviously. So you know, there there are all kinds of ways in which uh, capital, uh, in the classic sense of uh, uh, want, like desire for things, can uh, can capitalize and monopolize your desire. But then there's also uh, the way in which. Uh, you know, we have email and we're contactable all the time through mm-hmm. our phones. So people, so that, you know, that creates a condition for people to have casualized labor, for example, right? And so then uh, all of your time, uh, even your off time, it becomes like somehow uh, channeled into capital, you know, mm-hmm. because you're always potentially, you're standing reserve, right? You're yeah. always potentially investing your labor in in your job. So, uh you know, libido and libidinal energies in terms of labor and the terms of the way that your time and your literal physical energy is uh, channeled into the production uh, of, uh, of certain forms of life are channeled and shaped by uh, work relations and working conditions for a particular job to create an accumulation of capital mm-hmm. and reproduce capitalism, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. I guess. I guess I can. Uh, yeah, it, to you, yeah. Yeah. Sorry. Just to build on what you're saying yeah, there, as well. We, um, with how effectively social media and these kind of systems uh, platforms have hacked into our brains, you know, um, <laughs> yeah. we constantly, continually plunge ourselves over and over back into capitalist cyberspace, you know? It's we have we desire it. We're like, oh just give me one more dip. Give me one more plunge into this <laughs> nightmare world of advertising, this wall to wall, like full sensory experience of uh the social media world that we constantly carry with us. So we always have the potential um to be linked back in and to be a potential source for um, a profit and a vector of accumulation. And we actually desire that within ourselves, you know, we, and I mean, surely most people who are listening to this podcast know what I'm talking about, where, you know, you get that itch, like, oh, let me just, just check my phone here. Like, (laughs) you know, when you have a moment of boredom, a moment of rest, you know, out comes the, uh, the device and let's plunge back into capitalism. And, you know, uh, so Fisher talks about this and he talks about the way that the ideological function that this serves, right? He says the emergence of consumer electronic goods has allowed capital to conflate desire and technology so that the desire for an iPhone can now appear automatically uh, to mean a desire for capitalism, end quote. 
Okay. So it serves an important ideological function. You know, the fact that we have that, that desire that we're conditioned to desire our technology. Um, the capitalist basically takes credit for that and says, yes, I um, am the one who invented this technology. No one else could have possibly done it. No other economic system would have been uh, innovative, productive, and flexible enough to have done this. And therefore, uh, you know, you desire and love the future that we are building at the same time that when you think about the future, you imagine a burnt out hellscape. So, you know, anyway, there's some tensions there or some contradictions, you might say. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So there is another quote from Fisher, which I think is relevant here. It's relevant to this topic that we're kind of discussing right now, this relationship between capitalism and desire and the way that capitalism positions itself as the object of desire uh, and the subjectivities that are shaped under uh, contemporary late neoliberal capitalism are subjects which have their libidinal desires ordered towards uh, capitalism, capitalist production, capitalist accumulation, so on and so forth. Um, Yeah, so I just wanted to read this Yeah, I just want to read this Fisher quote real quick. So he says that the shift from Fordism to post-Fordism, or in Foucault de Luz's terms, from disciplinary to control societies, certainly involves a change in libido, an intensification of desire for consumer goods funded by credit. But this doesn't mean that it can be combated by an assertion of working class discipline. Um, and then he goes on to say that post-Fordism has seen the decomposition of the old working class. And so that's similar to uh, what he was saying in the other quote I read, but I just thought it was important to reiterate that. And uh, he evidently thought it was important to reiterate that as well. Um, I think this funded by credit point is important because that ties in the financialization uh, that's taking place under neoliberalism and how that actually impacts our um, psychic life and our ability to conceptualize what kind of um, commodities are available to us. And then in turn, the indebtedness of um, uh, most people today um, has a form uh, or sorry, has a function by which it shapes our subjectivity as well. Um, so yeah, I just wanted to point that out, this shift from uh, disciplinary to control societies, and as well the problematic then that with this shift, we've also seen the collapse of the um, old working class. And so there need to be new kinds of um, solidarities and um collective subjectivities constructed out of the wreckage of the old and in the context of this intensification of desire for uh, capitalist production accumulation and uh, commodity. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cause I mean, uh, when we had been talking about the, you know, the Fordist uh, disciplinary structure, the factory workers uh, kind of working together, there was always that uh, possibility for people to, uh, organize after work or, uh, you know, there was, there, there was like, uh, there was a place where everyone went. Right. Yeah. Um, whereas like in a lot of, uh, creative economy situations, there are lots of freelancers that just like work from home, you know, on their computer, they have their own, they have their office in their bedroom, you know what I mean? And it's just like, uh, you don't have the same, uh, meeting points. And this is not to say that the internet doesn't connect us. Right. But, uh, there are, there are like, 
ways in which so- social atomization can happen yeah. and like break down that possibility for uh, organizing. And then on top of that, there, uh, Keegan even Keegan and I even talked about this on an early episode of like on algorithms and the the development of polarization and this kind of stuff and the way that algorithms actually shape uh, the worlds. Uh, in which we live individually and uh, um, our own individual psychologies through pers- like the filters that uh, our own activity creates and how that's like f- fed into this uh, reciprocal system between the algorithm and you. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, we can have different results on the, the things that we search up compared to other people. So there's like, there are all kinds of implications there. But, but uh, that's, you know, I, I don't, I still don't think that that kind of stuff can break uh, a human relationships. It, it seems like it would be a good time to actually, uh, especially kind of jumping on the point that you made about this problem of the conflation with uh, desire and technology and mm-hmm. uh, desire and capitalism to uh, think about one of the points that Mark Fisher makes uh, in response to the argument that Louise Mensch makes about uh, uh, the Starbucks and iPods. Yeah. Uh, in the paper, Mark Fisher kind of just returns to the Starbucks example, and he's like, this one is a particularly interesting phenomenon. He says, you know, does does a Starbucks coffee actually inherently imply that you have a desire for capitalism? Like, if you really think about it, you know, you go into a Starbucks, and uh, it has, like, this extremely homogenous character. It, you know, it crushes individuality. Everyone's wearing, like, Starbucks uniform or whatever, and, like... <laughs> Uh, and then, you know, it's, uh, uh, it's, it's never satisfying. The coffee is like not very good. So, you know, you buy the coffee and you're desiring something, but it's like unsatisfactory. And he's like, you know, all of these, uh, all of these kind of descriptions, uh, really fit, uh, some of the old descriptions, uh, and portrayals of, uh, uh, communism in the in the West, you know, and then he, he what he basically says is, uh, you know, could it be that uh, the desire for Starbucks is actually the desire, for, uh, the thwarted desire for communism? Yeah. Right? <laughs> I, I think it's clever, but the whole thing he's trying to, I think, think about is really how we can look at our present material conditions and some of the things that exist in this uh, in the world of capitalism, and start to situate them as prefigurations of a post-capitalist world that hasn't been full, fully crystallized. Right? Yeah. That, you know, that, that re-infuses a sense of futurity within the present in a way. Uh, a post-capitalist world, you know, is going to have to deal with the things that are right in front of us somehow. You know, it's not like post-capitalism, like Keegan was saying, is this apocalypse where, you know, everything's fucking destroyed and like you're starting from scratch. It's like, no, there's all this shit here, you know? Mm-hmm. We got to think of how how it's all going to be reused and repurposed and recontextualized within a post-capitalist world. Um, and so, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Totally. So, yeah, I mean, Mark is strongly arguing. Mark, uh, yeah. <laughs> I, love, I love that. <laughs> so pal, right? He's our, he's our homie. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, he, basically, he's strongly arguing against this idea that desire and communism are fundamentally incompatible. And uh, he wants to start to imagine forms of post-capitalism 
that are desirable, right? And I think that's really important. He says that the libidinal attractions of consumer capitalism needed to be met with a counter libido, not simply an anti-libidinal dampening. So, you know, when we might say this narrative of the Soviet Union collapsed because, um, so many people were desirous of the consumer goods of the West. Mark Fisher's saying, yeah, the answer to that is not, oh, we just needed to crack down on discipline and uh, people were weak in their desire or something, but rather, how do you how do you build a non-capitalist world that is um, desirable in that way, that has those technical uh, technological elements, that uses those uh, to the good, right, for the sake of making this... Um, freer life desirable. So uh, that's the challenge there is how can we imagine that? He says, uh, I'll just read another quote real quick. Um, Instead of the anti-capitalist no logo call for a retreat from semiotic productivity, why not an embrace of all the mechanisms of semiotic libidinal production in the name of a post-capitalist counter branding? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so yeah, and so he's talking about this idea that he calls designer socialism, where he says we shouldn't let technological innovation and the creativity of design be completely assimilated to capitalism. You know, there's absolutely no reason for that. Uh, the left and the socialist left needs to explicitly compete um, in terms of uh, design, you know, and in terms of. Uh, constructing a future that uh, taps into these this libidinal economy and that works to unhook our our desire from capital itself right and so how is that done how is that done and so mark kind of gives a an example or uh, one idea of what that might look like, you know, and he talks about this older Soviet idea that basically um, all of your labor in the home would be socialized, all of uh, your cooking and cleaning and so on and so forth, all that would be socialized and your housing and all the rest. So he, he, he talks about it as basically a giant uh, free hotel chain. He says Russia would become a, <laughs> a giant free hotel chain. You would always, you would return to your room and everything would be cleaned and so on and so forth. <laughs> and um, <laughs> yeah, so he, he says, this is one example, right? Of that kind of, a kind of post-capitalism, which is not capitalism, but has some of those desirable elements that um, people find within it. And this is that that kind of quality of uh, luxury. And yeah, I mean, there's definitely something to that. I think, you know, we could also imagine forms of post-capitalist desire uh, where you're not just like completely alienated from the natural world and from cooking, for example. You know, I don't know. Like, yeah, I know, totally. It's like, yeah. oh, do skill, like, you know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know. That's, that's yeah. kind of funny. And I think this is where um, we might take issue with the terminology, the framing of the debate in the first place around anarcho-primitivism. Oh, yeah, totally. Which is, no matter how you spin it, like a highly racialized term yeah. and uh, the that assumes this kind of civilizational developmental trajectory, um, which, you know, as we know from a lot of decolonial theorists, is... Uh, 
basically constructed to exclude and belittle uh, indigenous people, indigenous worldviews and life ways. Um, and I think especially in you know, so-called North America today, any kind of post-capitalist future worth desiring has to involve uh, decolonization in a meaningful sense, which actually would mean, you know, reintegration in meaningful sense with the, um, uh, with, with ecosystems. Um, so that's worth bringing up here, I think, and just saying, you know, that Fisher's giving an example of what a post-capitalist desires look like. He's not being prescriptive. He's there's this is the challenge to us as well. Can you come up with a form of post-capitalism which is uh, desirable, which is something people want, uh, which is cool, which is chic? You know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there's an aesthetic. Uh, there's an aesthetic challenge here. Where can you, yeah, can you make the aesthetics of the left the sort of thing that people connect with, that they want, that they relate to, and so on? Yeah, yeah, and uh, one of the examples of this uh, this kind of synthesis of the radical and the chic, you know, and uh, and uh, creating a, a type of political aesthetics that can inspire political change and inspire an interest in political struggle and social transformation that can be that, I mean, that's, that's already in a way being achieved. Right. So like this essay was, um, again, you know, published in 2012, 2013 or something like this. So, you know, it's been seven years. Um, and so part of what, uh, uh, Keegan and I have also done is just like, how do we imagine this post-capitalist world? Well, we're, we're, we're still in a capitalist world, but, um, if we actually look at the world in front of us right now, there are all kinds of examples of certain types of socio-political formations that have been emerging uh, that could be part of a post-capitalist world or are leading towards one. You know, as mm -hmm. this taking up this language of prefigurations, and uh, in terms of embracing semiotic productivity, semiotic libidinal productivity. You can think of the production of images. Uh, you can think of the function of clothing as uh, signifiers, the multifunctionality of clothing, rather, um, as, uh, as not only signifiers of uh, political struggle or political involvement, but also depending on the production, the relations of production involved in in, for example, like a garment or something, uh, clothing could, on the one hand, function symbolic on like a symbolic order, but then uh, be produced by, I don't know, like political organization that you can like fund, right? So there's like a, a way in which uh, in which your your money isn't just going towards like H&M or some shit, but it's actually going towards like uh, directly towards struggle investing in particular types of future. Mm -hmm. I know this is kind of a funny way of like thinking about the struggle because it's like, oh, well, aren't you just using money or whatever? But, uh, yeah. but, but the, the, yeah, the struggle isn't, uh, achieved, uh, one way. And, uh, on, yeah, I mean, money, money does have to be invested in these, like, they're almost like experiments really. Yeah. Like, and then depending, depending on 
what you're funding, but like think of uh, Wet'suwet'en, right? Those are decolonial camps. Uh, they're like the money that's going into them are literal investments in like emergent systems of knowledge that aren't disciplinary, right? Like these are uh, these are knowledges of uh, subsistence and uh, like the mastery over the production of life, you know, in, in ways that we don't have. Like we're grossly uh, dependent on the things that uh, surround us, uh, especially if you grow up in like cities and shit. Like I don't grow my own food. I try, but I suck. <laughs> like I have to fucking go to a grocery store and buy shit. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like those are knowledges that are offering a certain kind of liberation in a way, right? And so money that goes towards certain... Uh, efforts are an investment in future alternatives to the way that we're living in cities uh, and in urban contexts. I'm kind of just rambling right now. <laughs> no, that's okay. Yeah. And so the clothing point is sort of ambiguous. And I'll, I'll return to that real quick. But yeah, yeah, um, sure. one point is that um, crowdfunding is a way of financially combating um the kind of concentrations of wealth under under capitalism reaching out to like a broad base of people in order to fund opposition to like a resource extraction project for example mm -hmm. which is kind of what alex is referring to with what so it's in that takes it takes funds to fight that and so these different methods of crowdfunding are kind of one way uh that you can make moves on that uh so but to circle back around to clothing i think clothing is Super ambiguous, ambiguous signifier, because, yeah, okay, so it could be part of a crowdfunding scheme. It could be just a, a regular part of capitalist society wherein you buy uh, fast fashion and yeah. try and, like, signal your quote-unquote individuality. Yeah, um, exactly. But, it, you know, clothing has, for a long time, been an important part of the way that um, anti-capitalist movements have kind of signaled themselves to one another, to the world, and so on. You know, you think of uh, uh, Fidel and Shea, um, always in military fatigues, you know. You think about the Soviet Union, the way that they had their uniforms, and, and so on and so forth, that uh, kind of signified the sort of um, project they were involved with. Uh, but I think the best example of a radical chic, you know, that isn't just clothing signifying something, but that actually has this element of chic, of desirability that um, Fisher is really driving at. The best example to my mind is the Black Panthers, where, you know, they all dressed in black, wore the leather jackets, had the berets, you know, and they look uh, sick as fuck. And uh, you know, young people at the time, and I mean, probably today too, I would assume, look at that and say, hell yeah, you know, I want to be part of this group of people who is projecting strength and confidence and power and, um, you know, rebelliousness and legitimacy all at once. They are managing to um, to pull all this stuff together. And, uh, yeah. And you think of the, the contrast between the way that the left is often portrayed as like deeply undesirable when it's like, <laughs> there's, Oh, there's like the screeching, like SJW on the campus or whatever. And like, it's always, uh, some terrible stereotype of like a queer person who is like has purple hair or whatever. And this person mm -hmm. is like an object of, of derision and disgust. And, uh, for people uh, on the kind of liberal left and on the, on and on the right. And, uh, there's a whole industry around like mocking leftists, mm -hmm. right. As though they're uncool and undesirable. Whereas, um, you know, if you look at the kind of 
stylistic um, semiotic signifiers that are at play in some in a group like the Black Panthers, you know, it's really quite the opposite of that. It's precisely this sense of um, cool where it's not going to be touched. It's not going to be shaken by, you know, right wingers or whatever, or people giving them shit. Like they're not, they, they're projecting the sense that they're not about to take shit. You know, they're not about to have a mental breakdown. They're like projecting strength. And um, that kind of that kind of thing is is I think desirable. And not that like vulnerability is bad or like signifying vulnerability is 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 necessarily bad. I think that can be good and important as well. But there's something there's something to how we kind of conceptualize cool and what what we generally consider as desirable, right? Um, and it's worth it's worth paying attention to that and thinking about how that can actually serve the ends of the left rather than just being like this huge barrier. <laughs> yeah, 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 and I mean. Last uh, on our last episode, we actually were speaking with uh, uh, our friend Mike Fong, and like he had mentioned how oh you know I hate how the conservatives in Canada have a monopoly on the word radical, and it's like it's kind of like this idea of um, reclaiming this term in left yeah. discourse, but also destigmatizing the way that uh, people will portray uh, radicality. And I know that radicality is something that is maybe being associated on both both sides of the spectrum. Yeah. It's a, it's a careful balance. And also to kind of just mention this, that, uh, you know, it's, it's not about the, the argument here isn't about like you're political. If you go out and you buy a t-shirt, you know, and <laughs> like express your radicality that way. Like yeah. this is about manifesting your politics on all the levels, yeah. uh, you know, uh, attacking capitalism on uh, all levels right yeah and so like semiotic but also uh, active material all these kinds of things you need to you need to wed these with multiple practices and i think that fisher would have been really interested in the bernie campaign and the corbin campaign which are probably some of the biggest most successful examples of left kind of pr aesthetics and um creating that a universe, a media universe of uh, desirability and of possibility, you know, and they were, they were very successful. They had a certain aesthetic that uh, did connect with, um, you know, millions of people. And um, in that sense, uh, they were, I mean, obviously we're talking about campaigns that failed, that were defeated, um, but by, you know, it's not as though the campaigns that defeated them actually were more aesthetic. Like they were unbelievably tacky, right? Like, we're talking about Boris Johnson and Trump, like these, or even within the the Democratic Party, you know, um, it's it's like shocking how tacky these the aesthetics of these like large scale capitalist powers really are, and it's actually kind of comical, and it's uh, pathetic. It's like you know, surely people can imagine and create more beautiful and aesthetic movements and, um, you know, that show up in the public sphere in the way that advertising and so on does that, you know, just by not being as like painfully kitschy, like even just a little bit less would be more successful. Like advertising campaigns are universally crazy tacky like the stuff that these people think is a good aesthetic i you know i just it boggles the mind to really think about it so 
yeah, like I, orange orange skin. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, like that's he's obviously one of the tackiest like people ever to exist in the history of the earth. Like <laughs> you know, you look back at some like great kings and so on, and they're like, wow, like you know, he may have been a monster, but he built these incredible, incredibly beautiful castles with like this awesome cathedral art or whatever. You know, and it's like it's aesthetic as fuck. Whereas we have the exact opposite to that. It's like, oh yeah, we have a comically evil like buffoon government, and also their aesthetics are crazy tacky. Like they're not even twentieth century fascist kind of good aesthetics. They're like, um, you know, just American kitsch, like Thomas Kincaid painting bullshit. You know, and. Uh, so it, I feel like there's an opportunity here for people who have aesthetic sensibility to actually step in and make something good, you know, and make something new and fresh. So that seems yeah. like a, an obvious point to me. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, 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 definitely. And I mean, I, I think I think another larger part of this discussion is like, you know, Fisher Fisher makes reference to the, you know, the cultural revolutions of the 60s and 70s and like what, you know, what what were part of those uh, cultural revolutions? Like uh, a lot of, you know, musicians, for example, took a really yeah. important role. And so like music, like music and the political left needs, uh, need to kind of wed together. You know, mm-hmm. what's, what, what's commercial, what's marketable, maybe not discourse about post-capitalism. Like, <laughs> <laughs> but this whole idea is that uh, there are all of these forms of cultural production that we need to place emphasis on, right? And I mean, obviously, cultural production and cultural production that's not produced uh, for money or for sales is you know, hard to achieve under the current working conditions that we live in, in the current society that we live in. But that requires other forms of desiring, uh, desiring UBI, desiring Mm -hmm. social housing or desiring a higher income or something like this. Right. Uh, So, I mean, there are all kinds of challenges and battles, but all of those battles need to be thought of uh, as happening kind of kind of simultaneously yeah. and uh, in coordination with each other, right? So that we can try and actually really uh, be able to cultivate imagination too. Because if you want cultural production and you want an ability to imagine, you also need time, uh, mm-hmm. you know, and you need... Uh, you need the resources and stuff. So creating organizations that offer offer resources to um, to the public are also very good, right? Uh, I, I know that like downtown in Montreal, for example, we have an uh, anarchist bookstore or, or library. Uh, they have a ton- tons of resources on anarchist literature, right? You know, they're, they're just like uh, different types of infrastructure uh, that need to be created and offer these, uh, fill in these, I guess, gaps mm-hmm. in a way. Yeah. yeah. So one thing that Fisher talks about is the way that the increase in tuition costs has actually shut down a lot of cultural production, whereas formerly art school and university was a place where um, like working class people could encounter the traditions of high art and then... Um, come up with sort of creative expressions out of that, that it was a very fertile ground. Um, with the increase in tuition costs, now like a working class person, that that's no longer accessible to them. That knowledge is, um, is gone. So they just end up whatever. They don't, they don't end up having the opportunity to create um, those great works of art in the same way that uh, they may have in the past, right? Like cultural production um, is stunted 
uh, right under neoliberal capitalism. Like that was uh, it. It obviously targeted that kind of cultural production, <laughs> and uh, you know either recuperated a lot of the kind of great artists of the '60s, or it um, shut down the possibility of new artists really emerging. But on the other hand, artists are like incredibly intrepid and are just going to create even if they don't really know what they're doing, don't have the resources. You know, I think that's one of the cool things about art. And so, you know, you can think about a lot of the music and art that is coming out now that is responding to our current moment and um, a lot of the anger and frustration that you kind of hear there at, you know, I think of like a lot of contemporary hip hop and the the anger about the police killings and the, the um, support for Black Lives Matter protest movements that is kind of stitched in, baked into the uh, cultural scene right now. And that would be one of those, um, one of those kind of cultural victories, right? Um, and uh, so another, another point kind of along this line about this question of uh, cultural production on the left and how that can um, help to combat capitalist hegemony uh, is like new left media using taking advantage of our kind of technological moment um, to spread leftist ideas to build analysis and also to make it cool and chic you know like there are videos you can watch stuff you can listen to people you can follow and so on who you will relate to and find funny and cool but who are going to enculturate you to leftist ideas and to an anti-capitalist viewpoint, you know, and that's actually pretty valuable, I would say. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. I mean, <clears throat> some some examples uh, could include like Media Indigena, Revolutionary Left Radio, right? Mm -hmm. Those are two podcasts. Yeah. But then uh, it's also on just social mass media. Yeah. Uh, Real People's Media, Get It, get it Him Checkpoint, uh, Decolonize Myself, Black Powder Press, all these kinds of different resources uh, that share information uh, related to particular struggles, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, that offer uh, certain forms of citizen journalism, you know, that have a direct kind of implication in in struggle that offer a particular perception that isn't filtered through mainstream media or that's re-portrayed through particular lenses, right? There's uh, this kind of direct form of mediation. And so, yeah, those those all of these different kinds of forms of communication, in a way, they're, uh, they're, they're different loci of uh, discourse, you know? Yeah. They're different loci of discourse. And uh, by, uh, by inscribing ourselves into... Uh, networks of these different kinds of media, it is a way in which you're uh, kind of written into a particular uh, uh, history that's unfolding on a day-to-day, -day, right, or a week-to-week, -week, depending on how often people are publishing shit. But yeah. th uh, these are all stories of the present that are unfolding, right? And as these uh, stories about the present are unfolding, uh, you're, you know, you're part of a sort of continuum, right? A collective continuum of different stories and struggles, and that can keep the momentum up for you uh, as a as a person, you know, and to be yeah. part of these these uh, histories, you know, towards something, you know. So it's 
like we're saying, like cultural production isn't everything either. And, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, we were joking that people could misinterpret what we're saying here by like, oh, yeah, traditional labor parties uh, actually suck and are bad and you should listen to rap music instead or something like that. And that's like not at all what we want to say. And so I think rather let's let's try and put this in in in, in focus. And so cultural production is part of the kind of larger project, the larger strategy or set of strategies, which today we need to implement in order to combat the complex and uh, powerful form of neoliberal capitalism that exists, right? Which is totally hegemonic, which has control over our desires and um, the the content of our lives, right? We need to work on building a kind of counter hegemony that is ready, that is in the wings, such that as this current form of neoliberalism falters and falls, we're ready to say, hey, here are visions of the future. Here are here are dispatches from a future time, which we are hearing, which could be more beautiful, more free, more creative than what we're stuck in now. You know, we can, we can promise a future or talk about a future wherein it's possible to actually like live out our own uh, kinds of individuality and our own creativity. You know, like that's the kind of stuff that we want to see realized. Uh, I, so I wanted to make a couple points about that, actually, where um, I was thinking about David Graeber, who recently passed away, rest in peace, and also Michael Brooks, who recently passed away. Uh, so two kind of interesting voices in the left's media sphere who've just kind of been snatched away too soon. But uh, in David Graeber's book on bullshit jobs, one of the things that he argues for is a universal basic income. And he says that, you know, right now, so much of our society is devoted to just filling the hours of people with utterly inane bullshit. And it is <laughs> yeah. completely meaningless, you know, the people who have these uh, kind of jobs as whatever, some kind of like bureaucratic flunky, and they spend 90% of their time just like cruising the internet, bored as hell at work. And, um, you know, that's not very great. That's a terrible way to have a society. He says, what if we could pay those people and just let them do their own thing? And he says, a lot of people criticize this because they're like, oh no, we're going to have all these people like making terrible bands and like, we're going to have shitty jugglers in the streets who like can barely do their acrobatic tricks and stuff. And he says, yeah, you know, that's actually great. Like who cares about that? We should let those people do those things and uh, we should free up their time so that they're able to express themselves, you know, and engage in creative expression and just have a free life, you know, um, alleviated from the profound worry of, um, of working these, these pointless inane jobs. Right. And, uh, you know, I think that that dovetails nicely with something that Michael Brooks talks about, where he talks about this idea of like a socialist left, which is invested in individuality and in creative expression, you know, and it's saying, no, we're not talking about like a bland, like homogenized Soviet world or whatever. Rather, you know, that is the world we're currently living in. You know, you're currently going to the Starbucks and going to the, you know, places where your individuality is completely flattened out. And you're currently working in a job where if you have any personal express, if you have any offer any personal expressions, it'll be, you know, immediately squashed. And uh, he says, 
let's imagine, let's talk about a more humane future wherein um, people do have the freedom to explore uh, their own individuality and to uh, manifest their own creativity, even if that doesn't result in anything particularly spectacular, you know? <laughs> even if it's not, you don't have to be like Michelangelo to, to paint, right? But if you had the time, maybe you could get a little better. Um, and as well, because I think a lot of people, when they think about the left and they think about socialism, they do think about homogenous, uh, bland, like repetitive grayscapes. Cliches. Yeah, just just <laughs> cliches from past like capitalist propaganda, you know? Yeah. And it's like, well, let's create a culture where we counter that propaganda and we say, yeah, this is just absolutely completely backwards. We're actually, we're the ones who are invested in individual liberty in a way that capitalism is not. Part of that as well is not seeding the concept of freedom to the right you know mm-hmm. and especially under neoliberalism the oh, con- yeah. the, the concept of freedom is so so important it's at the core of the neoliberal ideological construct right like oh you shouldn't be in a union because you should have the freedom to participate in the labor market however you so choose you should have the freedom to contractually um enslave yourself to whatever boss you want you know <laughs> unfortunately there's only one sorry like you know but at least you're free and you're free to be your own boss yeah you know? and internalize the yeah. uh, the uh, yeah. conflict between uh, uh proletariat and uh, yeah bourgeois, you know? yeah and have that play out in your own soul you know yeah exactly <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're free to be your own tyrannical boss. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. and um, yeah. So, and as well, the neoliberal conception of freedom works to say, oh, the the black person who was killed by the cops, you know, that person was free to have just lain on the ground meekly, and they wouldn't have been killed. You know, if only it was actually their own choices that that led to their death and it's it's so unfortunate that we just have this force of nature that is brutally murderous but given the fact that that's there you're completely free to just you know lay down and take it right um and so their appeals to freedom are also used in order to uh demonize the subjects under neoliberalism. So freedom is a a double-edged sword and it works to um download responsibility onto individuals. And you see the same thing with the climate change that I uh, mentioned earlier, you know, where it's like, well, you're free to just not not drive a car and to not have this uh, kind of um, power in your house or whatever, to not like draw from the coal plant. You could just uh, turn off your power, mm, whatever, freeze to death, I guess. And uh, you're completely free to do that. And so it's a way of downloading uh, responsibility, right? Um, so again, it seems like that we shouldn't cede the terrain of freedom. And so as the left starts to build up a kind of counter hegemony where we are um, talking seriously about freedom and we're saying and offering a future that where freedom is involved, you know, that can be really, really appealing to people. That can be really promising. That can be the kind of thing that people desire, right? Yeah, so those are just some of my thoughts there at the end that I wanted to kind of bring up about counter-hegemony in the context of desire and post-capitalism. Like, how do you make a a desirable left? And how do you make a left that is um, exciting and vibrant and that um, starts to peel off our desire from its kind of capitalist directives and, um, you know, still maintain some of those elements that uh, that are good, like technology and freedom, you know? Those aren't bad things, right? Those are 
good things, or they ought to be. But under under capitalism, they're actually horrible things that are used to justify police killing or used to kill people. Like this, you know, that's what we're talking about. So it's about taking back those things that we do, in fact, value and that we do, in fact, desire and um, building up new um, kinds of conceptual frameworks where they can be positioned and they can have a central role, you know, such that we have a future that's desirable to people again, instead of a future where we think, oh no, it's 2020 and like 2021 is going to be even more horrific, you know? And that's just like, that sucks, man. That's not the way you should be thinking about history. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. So, all right. Sorry if that was a huge rant, but. Yeah, yeah, sorry. No, it was great. It was great. I mean, uh, uh, I, I, I do, I do think that's a really good, uh, argument, right? Like coming back to Fisher. Yeah. We need to kind of reclaim these words, right? Reclaim the term radical, reclaim freedom, right? Mm-hmm. Reclaim, uh, creativity, right? Creativity. Is so associated with creative economy and yeah. neoliberal rhetoric, but how creative really is it? Right. And I mean, this whole example, uh, that you brought up of Graeber, uh, plays perfectly into this idea of creativity. Yes. We are post-capitalism is about creativity, creativity in for itself. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, rather than according to like commercial logics or something in relation to this idea of coming up with these new frameworks in which we can situate like things like technology and stuff. I mean, it is, it is really through the, these exercises in our imagination, through exercising our imagination together on the left, we can begin to come up with the contexts in which we can actually situate these things, right? We come up with the contexts, we have the ideas, uh, we can use them towards those ends that we come up with within the context. And then, um, uh, you know, we can create forms of action that come, that, uh, challenge the conditions of capitalism and the constraints, uh, that capitalism creates like scarcity or, uh, it's monopoly on our time or it's dispossession, uh, it's logics of dispossession on so many different levels, right? I mean, it uh, exercises the logic of dispossession of land, it, uh, dispossession of resources, dispossession of your own uh, music if you don't have CDs anymore or something, <laughs> you know, and all you, you, now you use those platforms where you can't even own shit mm-hmm. like, anymore. <laughs> um, it's like completely dissolves possibility for your ownership, right? But um, basically what I'm saying here is that... Uh, um, if we can create those infrastructures, then what you have are uh, contexts that are creating the, the conditions of possibility for action where there's non-action, you know, and a, and a type of non-action that's been imposed by the conditions of capitalism and neoliberalism, stuff like this. So, yeah, that's that's what I uh, yeah. wanted to kind of add to that. Totally. All right. Yeah. Do you want to kind of re- I think those yeah. are some good notes to end on. You know, we, yeah, we yeah, got sure. pretty fired up there and. So I think we hit most of our major points. I guess maybe just one final idea here uh, at the closing is this idea of making history. And, um, you know, so cultural production is part of that, but so are these material struggles too, right? Um, Like providing... Uh, having provisions from government which free up time and space for people, uh, be that UBI, socialized housing, 
etc. Those are absolutely worthwhile fights. Um, but so are the fights at the level of um, opposing resource extraction projects, ex- opposing uh, residential ex- development and expansion and this kind of thing. Like that is literally changing the shape of history, right? It's changing the material that will exist in the future. If, if those projects are successful and, you know, we might think of, um, of Standing Rock, of Wet'suwet'en, and so on and so forth, as as examples, right? And so I think the the cultural production and the material shape of history, those things are in a dialectical tension. And we need to have, like Alex was saying, the imagination. And in that context, we need to be creative and think about, okay, where are we going with this stuff, you know? What what kind of future are, are we trying to build and how do we make that... Um, the sort of thing that people want. And so, yeah, I guess that would be kind of the big takeaway is that history is not set in advance. We're not forced down this road into the Mad Max style apocalypse, right? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That's just not the case. Like there is, um, there are mechanisms through which uh, we can change the the course of that history, but Mm -hmm. we need to have the analysis to be able to know where those places are where you where you can push right and so i think that's where we've gone some way today towards hopefully helping you guys see that is what is the shape of contemporary capitalism and where are the places um where we can push back right and how can we contest um the terrain in which it's operating so you know um check out this essay if you haven't already read it it's it's worth the read it's pretty short it's 20 pages or something you know and fisher's mm-hmm. he's a great writer uh it's very readable um but there's a lot of depth there you know he's drawing on um Deleuze and Guattari he's drawing on psych- psychoanalytic traditions and you know so there's a whole kind of scholarly apparatus which we didn't go into too too much um but that is there if that's the kind of stuff that you value. But, you know, even if that's stuff that you're not super familiar with, I think you can still get something out of this essay. It's a quick read and um, it'll be an inspiration to think about where those challenges are and what the possibilities are. So um, highly recommend to everyone, especially during this time of COVID, of climate collapse, of, um, you know, emergent fascism, where, you know, hope seems kind of hard to come by. And um, it's it's challenging to imagine this better future. But um, I think what we want to say to you guys is that it's a radical uh, discipline and practice to do that imagining to do the work of uh, thinking of a future which is livable and um, that is actually uh, outside of the current uh, paradigm of capitalist realism. Also, I uh, recently discovered that there's a, uh, a book that just came out um, this year uh, that is a collection of Mark Fisher's uh, uh, final lectures, and it's all around the topic of post-capitalism. So that could be another thing to check out. And uh, I mean, there are there are all kinds of discussions 
that need to be had about this post-capitalist world and post-capitalist vision. And I mean, uh, whole branches of discourse in, for example, I don't know, abolitionism, for example, uh, alternative theories of justice in a post-capitalist world, all kinds of different things that could be brought in. So, I mean, if there are any listeners out there that have been listening to this and wanted to kind of pitch in or whatever, you should totally talk to us on Twitter or send us an email. Yeah. Or, you know, maybe in the future we can do another episode of like other forms of um, these types of uh, or- organizing or social, yeah, social organizing and stuff. Like yeah. That, so. yeah, totally. Mm-hmm. All right. So I think you will call it there and, yeah. you know, thanks so much. If you've made it this far, uh, we'd love to hear from you. Like Alex was saying, hit us up on Twitter, Facebook, or send us an email and yeah, we'll uh, catch y'all next time.